So I did all the announcements. Woo! I only got one more. Thanks. Uh, on the corner out here, you may have noticed there's actually a new sign-up that says this property is now for sale. Oh, I didn't see that. Okay. So if you want to buy it and give it to us, that'd be great. <laughs> Apparently, it's, it's only $6.5 million. <laughs> really, chump change, right? Yeah, I know. Crazy. So but anyway, you know, hey, it's a write-off. Anyway, when we, first, when we first moved in here, we thought we were going to be here for like maybe eight months before they kicked us out because they were going to tear everything down. We have actually been here almost three years. So God's really been good, giving us a lot of time in this space. And I mean, seriously, we may be here, you know, in the economy, at 6.5 million. They're like, seriously, we'll be here like another 10 years at this point. But we're kind of outgrowing the space, so it's good. And we have a couple ideas of where we're going, so don't fret. But if you do have like, you know, 30 million bucks laying around, you want to give it to us. Awesome. That's all I'm saying. If we spent 6.5, then we'd be in the same boat we are now. I'd be like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Because then we'd have to actually pay our electric bill, and now we don't have to. The landlord actually pays our electric bill, so it's kind of nice. Although the shoe mask could still rent from us in the parking. Whatever. Why don't you guys stand me reading God's Word? What a day. What a day. It's a Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3, and it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as a people ask that we would learn to trust you more and more as our great shepherd, that as you lead, we would follow, we would listen, and that we would surrender our entire lives to you so our lives more reflect who you are and bring you greater glory. Amen. Have a seat. So we're doing this series called The Missing Words. This is week six. We got two after this week. Uh, the missing words. This is the way that rabbis used to teach in Jesus' day, and they actually still teach this way today at times, where they wouldn't say an entire statement or an entire verse of Scripture, and they would let you fill in the rest. This is a technique to get the students to do the hard work of figuring out some of the things that were being said, to know the full meaning of what they are saying. Now, when you were growing up, you guys, hope we all had a mom and a dad at some point somewhere. Maybe they didn't stay together, but you all had a mom and a dad, right? Okay, you ever had your mom or dad say no to you, right? And then you keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and then their eyes cross and their face changes color and they give you like the death look that says you keep going, you will die, right? So much is being said without being said. As a matter of fact, we're in staff meeting this week and Sean Jones was talking to me about something that I didn't realize he, he was doing. And I, and I was just like, What? And I, and I gave him this look, and he goes, I have never seen that look from you before. <laughs> and so, you know, so much more gets said without actually being said. That, that's the kind of thing. Now, Jesus didn't use the look, but that idea sometimes when th- certain things get left unsaid, so much more is being said, the missing words. Now, today in the missing words, we're going to do something a little bit different, because I usually give you like 25 minutes of history, and then I bring everything together with the missing words all in the end. Today, I'm going to reveal to you the missing words right at the top, and then I'm going to talk to you about our great shepherd, God being our good shepherd, and why sometimes our shepherd seems to be silent when he's said to intently care for his flock. One of the most fascinating things you see throughout the scriptures is that Jesus points towards his own identity as the one who would fulfill all of the scriptures. Some of his most powerful claims to be the Messiah were delivered in this subtle missing word kind of way. I've showed you this over the last six weeks so far. Now, one of the most popular images that people have today of Jesus is the good shepherd. Here's a picture. 
I like this one because it's kind of all Jesus, all bad, like, I'm going to kick something. He's watching. Here's another one. All right, this is the more standard version. You know, these, these are all of these pictures of Jesus, these paintings, these poems, as the Good Shepherd. Open your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. All of these images that we see through poems and paintings and stained glass all come from words of Jesus about himself. In John chapter 10, verse 14, this is where Jesus makes one of the Good Shepherd statements. John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this comes in John 10. John 10 comes right after John 9, because that's how numbers work. And in John chapter 9, there's a guy, Jesus heals him. And this guy believes and starts following Jesus. And because he does, he gets kicked out of his synagogue. He gets called a lot of names. He has disfellowship from the people he knows. And then Jesus shows up and defends this guy. He comes as a shepherd to defend his sheep. And then he gets into chapter 10 and he says, I am the good shepherd. And he talks about how his sheep will hear his voice. But what would a Jew, Jewish audience hear when they heard, I am the good shepherd? Open to Psalm chapter 23 that we started with. When Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, they would automatically think back to one of Israel's most beloved psalms. You probably only hear it at a funeral, but it's actually a psalm about, about life and hope and God coming to redeem and rescue his people. In Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, King David writes this about God, the creator of the universe, Yahweh. And David, being a shepherd himself, has had to fight off bears and lions away from his flock. So he understands that with God as a shepherd, things are fine. There's no reason to fret. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 2, he makes me lie in green pastures. This is what separates shepherds from farmers. Shepherds lead their sheep, take them to places where they can eat, where they can sustain, where they can actually live. A farmer would bring food to his animals, where a shepherd would lead them. Verse 2, he leads me beside quiet waters. These are the words, manuha me'im, it is quiet, serene, still, waters. Shepherds have said throughout the ages that sheep are stupid. And apparently they are. And I think this is why God calls you an ice sheep. Because well, I'm not stupid. Well, yeah, you just proved my point right there. You're told that ripples of water in a pool can actually mesmerize a sheep. And they'll be like, ugh. And, they, and sheep have actually been known to drown in little bits of water because they get memorized by the ripples. Like, and, and then they're down. And so what a shepherd does is he looks for good, still, quiet water to make sure his sheep are taken care of. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. A shepherd saves the sheep not only from predators, but also from itself, restoring wayward sheep. Jesus is doing more than evoking accompanying images of a shepherd. Here's another picture. You guys seen something like this, like in a painting or something where the, the shepherd's carrying a sheep on his shoulders like that? You know why they do that? Because a sheep would wander away and wander away and the shepherd would go after the sheep, break its leg, mend it up, carry it around until that leg healed, put it down, and then that sheep wouldn't wander from the shepherd anymore. So Jesus not only is provoking in, in a thing of, of, I'm going to here take care of you, but... I'm here to take care of you even when you step out of line. He's evoking an image of power because shepherd imagery is used throughout the Old Testament to describe kings. I mean, when you hear this, people, uh, the Jews would have thought of like Isaiah 44, 28, where King Cyrus of Persia is actually called a shepherd. Psalm 78, verses 71 and 72. This is where King David is called the shepherd of Israel. 
The wise men, even after going to find Jesus, they go and meet Herod. And his counselors quote Micah 5, 2 and Matthew 2, 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And in Ezekiel 34, God expresses his anger at the leaders of his people, describing them as bad shepherds. And then he promises to send a good shepherd to his flock to oversee them and take care of them. And Jesus shows up in John chapter 10 and says... I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Open to Matthew chapter 25. Now, John chapter 10 would have kind of astonished uh, Jesus' listeners. But in the most Jewish of Gospels, Matthew, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 25. And this would actually probably very irritate the people who are listening to him. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says this. When the Son of Man, and this is a title we'll actually talk about next week a bit, when the Son of Man comes in glory with, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, when the people hearing this, what they would have thought back to is again Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 17. And this is God. He says, As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. And by Jesus using this metaphor of a shepherd sorting his sheep, he's linking himself to God who separates and sorts all people. He's linking himself with the shepherd of Israel who is God. His listeners would have been shocked. They would have been scandalized. And this is one of the reasons why they killed Jesus because he continued to claim to be God. Now today, we come and take these words for granted. Jesus says, you know, I am your king. I am your shepherd. Don't worry about what happens. I'll carry you when you need it. And I may even have to break you at times. But I am your God and you can trust me. What I want to do this morning is step back a little bit, though, and connect this for you today. Because I think we all pass through some very tough times in our lives. And scripture teaches that we are like sheep and we have a shepherd. We have a shepherd. But what do you do when you feel like your shepherd is silent? When you feel like God doesn't answer you? When God has abandoned you? And I've looked for a way to talk to you about this for a while, and I thought it would fit very well within the confines of this message. I run into so many people who believe in Jesus, and then I run into so many others who don't, and some of the reasons they say they don't is because they feel alone, they feel let down. Now, it's, it is, it's not very strange to me that people would feel this way because everything around us pushes you not to believe in God, to doubt Scripture, especially what He calls His people to. You watch, you watch TV. You can't find a normally married couple anywhere on TV. Normally married couple anywhere on TV. And if this is all that you fill your brain with is what our society constantly teaches you, of course you will think following your shepherd, listening to God, hearing His voice, living the life He calls us to is impossible. So what I want to do this morning is I want to play devil's advocate for a bit about the silence of our shepherd and hopefully in the end show you that he has good reasons when he is silent and that he actually is the good shepherd. Now, the medieval church, they used to hire a lawyer in the case of anyone who was proposed for sainthood. And this lawyer was called the devil's advocate. His purpose was always to give decisions integrity because honest doubt is sometimes the devil's advocate that honest faith requires. Now, believe it or not, believers and unbelievers, we inhabit the same world. Really, yes, we do. We simply see things differently. We see the same circumstances. We see the same sunsets. We agonize over the same unfed children in the world. And most believers I know do not claim to have seen visions. They don't hear voices. They don't experience the kind of miracles that could prove God in some scientific, demonstrable way. Believers, we are troubled by the same evil and pain in the world and suffering and even the suffering in our own lives. Yet we choose to believe. 
God has sought us and saved us and our entire existence is placed upon this God that we cannot see and cannot touch and we can hear when we listen to His Spirit, but many times we cannot demonstrably prove. Others come along and they want to bet their entire existence on the notion that God does not exist. And so this morning, as we go through this talking about the Good Shepherd, I'm going to give you honestly the three main struggles I have with explaining the gospel. And they fall into three categories. And these are questions that people have asked me recently. And so I'm like, this would be good to kind of talk about with you guys about. The first one is this, the lack of evidence. Lack of evidence. More proof. People want more proof. I wish sometimes there could be the same kind of proof for the existence of God that there is for the existence of Italy or chicken pox. Unfortunately, we treat God a lot of times like we treat the national debt. Oh, you know, it's, it's kind of there somewhere, but it doesn't really affect me, so I don't really care. Trust me, it's going to affect you real soon. Just letting you know. If God is there, why doesn't he make more noise? If believing in God is such a big deal to him, why doesn't, make, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why doesn't he just part the clouds and write his name in the sky? God, you know, Yahweh, Jesus, whatever. You know, why doesn't he give us more compelling proof? Bertrand Russell is considered one of the world's most famous atheists. When he was 90 years old, he had a famous encounter with a woman at a party. And the woman says this to him, Mr. Russell, you are not only the world's most famous atheist, you are maybe the world's oldest atheist. You will die soon. What will you do if after you die it turns out that God exists? What will you do when you come face to face with this God whom you defied your whole life long? And Bertrand Russell says, I would point my finger at this God and say, you, sir, gave us insufficient evidence. Now, I think if God, he does this to him before God, I don't think he's going to have the wherewithal to do that. Oh, dang it. <laughs> Norwood Russell Hansen, uh, who was an atheist, says this. I'm not a stubborn guy. I would become a theist, a believer, under some conditions. I'm open-minded. So he goes on to explain his open-mindedness. And this is what it is. Next Tuesday morning, so it's got to be on a Tuesday apparently, just after breakfast, all of us in this one world are knocked to our knees by a percussive and ear-shattering thunderclap. Okay. Snow swirls, leaves drop from trees, the earth heaves and buckles, buildings topple and towers tumble. Well, this is the same reason that some people claim not to believe in God, that this happens. The sky is ablaze with an eerie, silvery light, and just then, all the people of this world look up, the heavens open, and the clouds pull apart, revealing an unbelievably radiant and emit Zeus-like figure towering over us like a hundred Everest. He frowns darkly as lightning plays over the features of his Michelangeloid face. Then he points down at me. Also, everybody on the earth's got to hear this, and he's got to point to this guy out of everybody on the earth and explain for every man, woman, and child to hear, I have had quite enough of your too clever logic chopping and word watching in matters of theology. Be assured, Norwood Russell Hansen, that I most certainly do exist. So that's all it takes. Amazing. <laughs> now, that would be an interesting encounter, right? But what we know from looking at things in history, people that get these experiences don't actually believe. They don't actually follow. The, the Israelites, they're in Egypt. God sends succession of plague after plague after plague, miracle after miracle after miracle. Moses takes a stick, throws it on the ground, turns into a snake. I'd be like, ah! You know, I would run away. But they're like, oh, that doesn't mean anything. Whatever. I mean, plague after plague, miracle after miracle. And then God leads them by a cloud during the day, a pillar of fire at night. He parts the Red Sea. He drowns the Egyptian army, either in a gigantic sea or six inches of water. Depends on who you talk to. They're both amazing miracles. You know, and, and takes them out into the wilderness and speaks to them, gives them the words of Scripture. And yet, just a few months later, they start complaining. They want Moses' brother to build them a golden calf. You know, they, they want to go back to Egypt and eat leeks and onions. Crazy people. Maybe God has his reasons for his silence. I, let me, how about this? 
Now, there's a lady. Her name was Agnes. From the time she was a young girl, Agnes believed in Jesus. I mean, not just believed. She loved Jesus. She is on fire. She wants to do great things for God. She, in her journal, she writes, she wanted to love Jesus as he has never been loved before. And she knew that Jesus was with her. She had an undeniable sense of him calling her in her life. So she writes in her journal, my soul at present is in perfect peace and joy. She leaves her home. She becomes a missionary. She gives him everything. And then God becomes silent. He, she cannot hear him any longer. She felt she was abandoned. That's how she felt. She writes in her journal later, she says this, Where is my faith? Even deep down there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain. I have no faith. She tries to pray and she writes, I utter words of community prayers and try my utmost to get out of every word the sweetness it has to give. My prayer of union is not there any longer. I no longer pray. Now on the outside, she works, she serves, she smiles, but she spoke of this inner journal as a mass that covers everything. The inner dryness and pain she feels over the absence of God continues year after year for 50 years with one brief respite in the middle of it. Now, Agnes is better known as Mother Teresa. And actually, she wanted all of her journals and her secret letters burned after she died so no one could read them. Now, many people who are atheists have grabbed her letters and started saying, yes, see, she was, she was doubting, she was doubting. But a strange thing happened in the middle of all this. Her willingness to persist in the face of this agonizing doubt has actually brought comfort and strength to many people who have doubts. Easy formulas that are guaranteed to make, it, guaranteed to make us feel closer to God usually don't work. They fail. Now, some people see Mother Teresa butting up against the reality that God isn't there after all. Richard Dawkins told people not to be taken in by the sanctimoniously hypocritical Mother Teresa. Now, that's a bad strategy. If you want to convert people to atheism, taking a shot at Mother Teresa cannot be your best move. All right? But Mother Teresa, she didn't have this negative understanding of her shepherd. That's not how she saw God and his silence. She didn't reject God's call. She had a friend she talked to. She lived in community with some other people and spoke to them about this. You should all be in a small group. There's a sign up in the back. You should be in some type of community group because it helps you in times like this. And her friends, her counselors, told her three things she needed to hear. That's what they said. One is that there is no human remedy for the silence of God. There is none. It is not your fault. When God is silent, he has his reasons for it. The second one is that feeling the presence of Jesus was not the only or even the primary evidence of his presence. In Matthew 7, 7, 17, Jesus says, by their fruit you will know them. By their fruit you know when they follow me. And they said, the fact that you have this craving was a sure sign that God is present in your life. And the third thing they said was that the pain you are going with you can be redemptive. Jesus experienced silence from the Father. In Matthew 27, 46, Jesus Christ from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his suffering was redemptive for us. So Mother Teresa could re suffer redemptively by trusting God in the midst of her darkness. There's a guy, his name is David Winter. He suffers a disease where over a period of three weeks he loses his sight. In three weeks. So people have to help him find things, navigate stairs, navigate his entire life. And this is what he says, Never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. Now, I believe that there is good reason why God doesn't show up in the sky with a Michelangelo face for a showdown. Because God's goal for the human race is more than just getting people to admit that he exists. Imagine you're driving down the road in your car. You're doing double the speed limit. You look up and you see a cop. And you, and you slow down and you freak out because you suddenly find your intention to obey the speed limit goes way up. But it's not because your heart has changed. It's not because there's anything different inside of you. I mean, you don't find that you suddenly have a deep conviction about following the, the speed limit and loving the existence of a police officer standing on the street in front of you. 
See, what happens in this is that our own darkness is still preoccupation. What they do is they prevent us from seeing the officer of the law objectively. We're projecting our fears, our desires, our selfishness all onto him. Oh, he just wants to meet a quota, so he's going to pull me over. Oh, there's a lot of other people robbing houses out right now, and yet he's trying to pull me over. What's up with that guy? All these things filter the way that we see this human being. Now, when it comes to seeing God, you've got to multiply this a thousand times over. In Exodus 33, verse 20, it says, No one can see God's face and live. Now, what does it mean, no one can see God's face? I think it means a lot of things. But I actually think one of them is that we cannot see God as he is, that we are incapable of this on our own. We project all of our fallenness onto God. Open your Bibles to the book of James, New Testament, towards the back. Getting people to believe in the existence of God does no good. People can believe in God but still have lives that are moral and spiritual disasters. Personally, many times I would rather talk to an atheist than someone who just believes in God because they're easier to talk to about Jesus. I mean, people who believe in God say crazy things like, oh, God told me it was okay to leave my wife. Jesus told me it was okay to smoke pot. Jesus told me it was okay to sleep with my girlfriend. I'm like, really? How come Jesus never tells people, hey, it's okay to love people more? You know, he always, Jesus told me I could totally screw up and be okay. It's crazy stuff. James 2.19 says this, you believe that there is one God. Good. That's going to be like, good for you. Okay, you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, do the demons believe that this one God is good and just and fair and loving? Do these demons believe the same thing about, about the Father that Jesus believed about his Father? Not at all. Because if they did, they never would have rebelled. God seems to present himself to people in such a way that when they want to dismiss him, they can dismiss him. People who want there not to be a God will find a way to convince themselves that there is no God. Blaise Pascal once said, there is enough light for those who want to see and enough darkness for those of a different persuasion. We are called to be a people who understand that even when our shepherd is silent, he is there and he is leading and guiding. The second struggle I have with this is God's products. This would be you and I, believers themselves. Why aren't we better people? If Jesus, if what he said is true, why have his followers done witch burnings and and crusades and inquisitions? Why have I talked to two people in this past week that have come into Element and said, I had nobody said hi to me. I just stood there all alone and nobody talked to me. Why? Why does that happen? An atheist named Steve Weinberg said this, Good people do good things and bad people do bad things, but to get good people to do bad things, that takes religion. <laughs> Lots of horrible things have been done in the name of God. And we're not a people who should try to minimize them or justify them. In 1 Peter 4.17, Peter says this, For it is time for the judgment to begin with the family of God, shepherd, sheep, and goats. God comes and deals with his people. So here's a good question to ask. Were horrible atrocities that take place or something as simple as not saying hi to somebody else, are these the outcome of Jesus' teachings or are they violations of it? Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. When somebody hits you, turn the other cheek. He says on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. So are these things the outcome of Jesus' teachings or violations of it? Another question to ask is, has the human race ever done better in society that seeks to eliminate Jesus altogether? The greatest bloodbaths in the 20th century were recorded in societies that tried to get rid of faith in God altogether. Stalin is responsible for 20 million deaths. Mao Zedong in China is responsible for 70 million deaths. Hitler, 10 million deaths. Pol Pot in Cambodia runs an atheist regime where it is estimated that 20% of his entire population was massacred under his hand. 
Now, Ilya Wassal, who lost his family in the Holocaust, he writes this, the programmatic absence of God, or at least the illusion of opposing his presence, leads systematically to horror. I mean, try to imagine, just a little thought experiment. Imagine society with no religion or no faith and no God. Does it seem likely, this society, that no one's going to covet somebody else's money? No one's going to covet somebody else's house? No one's going to covet somebody else's spouse? People with different skin tones will automatically get along and become friends. Do you think because religion is done away with, greedy people become generous and angry people become merciful and Jerry Springer gets canceled and boy bands go away? <laughs> See, the Crusades and the Inquisitions, they don't, they don't really produce doubt in me because I more worry about what society becomes apart from faith if no one ever listened to the shepherd's voice. Frederick Beechner makes a joke about preachers. He goes, he goes, there is perhaps no better proof of the existence of God than the way year after year he survives the way his professional friends promote him. Sometimes. We would be worse off on our own. Now, Everin Wash, she's a Catholic, and she was asked, how can you call yourself a Catholic and be so badly behaved, so mean, such a jerk, so spiteful? And she responds, just imagine me if I weren't a Catholic. Now, I know we, we all have these explanations, like only God sees the heart. Jesus prefers to hanging out with sinners and to hanging out with saints. Not everyone who calls himself calls a Jesus Lord is really a follower. But if you look on the other side of this, alternative ideologies from Marxism to psychoanalysts hasn't set the world on fire. Freud even says this, psychoanalysts, uh, psychoanalyst has not made the analysts themselves better, nobler, or of stronger character remains a disappointment for me. Perhaps I was wrong to expect it. Of course you're wrong to expect it, because anytime we look at ourselves, we just go downhill fast. The picture of a shepherd that Jesus gives is one who seeks his sheep. He brings tough times so they stick close to the shepherd. That's what he calls us to, because change is expected in his people. And the third problem I have is the problem of pain. And this is usually the biggest question that I get from people, the problem of pain. Why is there suffering? Why doesn't God put an end to it? Why are there natural disasters and car crashes and fires and diseases and heart attacks and cancers and Alzheimer's and Britney Spears making a new album? You know why? Why did all that stuff happen? <laughs> Steve Weinberg, the atheist, says this, the God of birds and trees would also have to be the God of birth defects and cancer. Well, this is true. This is true. But do you know that most religions, evil and suffering is not a problem at all? Not at all. In Hinduism, suffering is a result of bad karma from a previous life. So you better get it right this time. But unfortunately, we all sin and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And pretty soon you end up as like a frog or, or a cow or you know whatever you end up as. In Buddhism, they don't have a problem with it because in Buddhism they teach that all life is pain. All life is suffering. You talk to a Buddhist in America, it's like, oh no, we're the religion. No. They t Buddhist, Buddhist whole idea was that all life is pain and there is no self. And once you understand that you have no self, there's no reason to avoid pain. Not having a self also come in handy when the IRS wants to audit you, but you know that's the whole deal. Nicholas Wolsterstorff, he's the guy who writes a book called Lament for His Son. When his son was 25 years old, his son's climbing a mountain and he ends up dying in the excursion. And so he goes through a lot of pain about the loss of his son. And what he says is he comes to this place where he realizes that God is suffering over his suffering. He says, I had not realized that if God loves the world, then God suffers. I had thoughtlessly supposed God loved without suffering. I knew that divine love was the key, but I had not realized that divine love, that is the key, is a suffering love. Jesus introduces us to a suffering God who suffers with his people because he loves us, because he's a shepherd who weeps over his sheep and longs to bring them home, not because he is powerless to act, but because he gives his sheep an awful lot of freedom. You and your life, 
may have had times where you wonder about the silence of your shepherd. And it's a good thing to wonder about because when your shepherd is silent, it's a strange silence. In atheism, it's not a strange silence because it's all that there is. There's nothing else. No answer to anything, no meaning, nothing, just silence. And we as a people may not like the silence. We may not have chosen to have unanswered questions. But we must choose how we understand the silence. Do we trust? Do we believe our shepherd is guiding us even when he seems silent? I mean, you can be an atheist and say, well, this is all that there is. It's all going to come to nothing. That, that's all. Or it can be like Nicholas Wolsterstorfer says this. You are uniquely designed creation of a thoroughly good and unspeakably creative God. You are made in his image with the capacity to reason, choose, and love that sets you above all other life forms. You will not only survive death, but you yourself were made to bear an eternal weight of glory you cannot now fathom, and you will one day know. And this is because you have a great shepherd, and his name is Jesus, and he leads you home. He is the good shepherd. Now, I read the story recently, and I'll end with this. Uh, there's a woman named Cheryl. Uh, she has muscular dystrophy. She goes into a salon to get her nails manicured. As the petition begins to work, they begin to talk about a whole bunch of different things, a bunch of conversations. Eventually, they talk about God. And the petition says this. The petition says, I don't believe in God. And Cheryl says, why do you say that? She goes, well, you have to just go out on the street and realize God doesn't exist. If God exists, there would be so many sick people. You know, would, would there be abandoned children? If God existed, there would neither be suffering nor pain. I can't imagine a loving God who would allow these things. Now, Cheryl, because of her MS, she can't really talk that quickly, and, and so she just kind of let it go because she didn't want to have an argument. The petition finishes her job. Cheryl leaves the shop. Just after she leaves the shop, she walks outside, and she sees a woman on the street. Long, stringy, dirty, nasty hair, filthy. She smells bad. She's unkempt, and Cheryl gets an idea. She turns around walks back in the shop and says to the beautician, you know what? Beauticians don't exist. And she goes, what? How can you say that? I just worked on you. I, I, I exist. And Cheryl goes, no, petitions don't exist. If they did, there'd be no people with dirty, unkept hair that smell really bad sitting right outside your place. She goes, but petitions do exist. That woman just hasn't come in here and seen me. And she goes, exactly. Exactly. See, the, the problem with doubt is what doubt does when it gets toxic. It's what it does to us. It keeps us from listening to our shepherd, from learning from our shepherd, from surrendering to our great God who has sought us and loved us and redeemed us. See, there is a shepherd, and he longs to lead you home, and he longs to offer you purpose, even when you cannot hear it or see it. He loves you more than you know. His name is Jesus. He dies and rises from the dead so you can have a relationship with the Father again. And he says, I am the good shepherd, and I will restore your soul. Trust me, even when I seem silent, even when your life seems tough, because I will lead you home. You must trust him. This is the reason that we bring you to communion every single week, because communion is a place of this trust, of saying, God, you are leading me where you want me to be. And I'm going to place everything in my life in your hands because you have sought me and you have saved me. This is why you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice like Christ's, body, or Christ's blood that was shed for you and I so that we can be these people who are led home. These people who understand that our great shepherd came and died for his people so that we could be the sheep of his pasture. And I tell you, again, sheep are dumb. You know, we are. But I will tell you, God longs to lead us home. Surrender everything you have to him. The band's going to come up do a couple songs. 
And as they do, we invite you to, to take an examination of your life and how, where in your life you have not been surrendering to our great shepherd. Maybe where you've had questions and doubt in your life. As a matter of fact, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you have had some questions... <laughs> I'm like, ah, what's happening? This isn't how it works. <laughs> and if you have some questions, uh, pray with them. Talk to them. They'd love to talk to you about this. Uh, there's offering box on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship, so we give that opportunity every week. And there's some uh, mini cupcakes in the back. My wife made those yesterday. The house smelled really good. I didn't eat any of them, although she did make some cookies, and I ate them all. And she, she comes out of, the, uh, out of the back room, and she's like, where'd the cookies go? And I go, oh, I didn't know you wanted some. <laughs> So, but we brought some stuff for you guys, all right? So, so, you as, so you, just like sheep, can go back there and graze, get to know some other sheep, and learn how to live this life together. Because I'll tell you, at times, when it seems like the shepherd is silent, that is why he has also given us other people, to live and walk the road that he calls us to with each other in community, going the direction he calls us to go. He is a good God. Uh, Peter Kreft is one of my favorite authors. He's a philosophy instructor, and he says this. Uh, he, he, on, on the wall of his office, he has this uh, cartoon, and it's two turtles. And one turtle on the one side, it says, uh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why he didn't do anything about all, the, all the, the suffering in the world. And then the next panel, the other turtle says, I'm afraid he's going to ask me the same thing. And, and that's true. As God's people, we are called to be his hands and his feet. So we need to be doing something. Showing who our great shepherd is by how we as his sheep listen to his voice and follow him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as your sheep and you would overcome uh, much of our ignorance so that we could have the ability to trust you, to see through the tough times and know that you are the one who, are, who is leading us that maybe sometimes we, we wander so much that you come and you break our leg and, you, and then you carry us and we're like, it hurts, it hurts. And you're a God that says, I know it hurts. And I suffer with you and I love you. But this is for your good. God, help us to be able to see all things in our life that has been sifted through your hands so that we trust you as we are supposed to trust you and follow you as we are supposed to follow you. Father, I ask that you would make us hungry for you and your spirit. And have us in that hunger realize that you are the one who leads us and guides us and brings us home as our great and good shepherd. Amen.